Welcome to The Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. Well, yes, indeed. Welcome to The Sages Among Us. Uh, as mentioned, I am Keith Porter, and I have a very interesting guest tonight on The Sages Among Us, where we're going to learn all about his background, his uh, civic engagement, and all of that. And he is Lou Sissi. Uh, how's that pronunciation, Lou? Well, that depends on where you are. In Italy, <laughs> it would be Cecchi. Yeah. And here in America, the family opted for Sisi. Sisi. Okay. Lou Sisi. Mm -hmm. uh, newly elected, well, last year, uh, Nevada City Councilman. But Lou has a background that is, uh, I don't know, was broad and wide. And uh, he used the word checkered, so maybe yes. I can use that too in terms of diversity. Uh, that, uh, you know, you just don't run across somebody with this much different kinds of experience often. But he's taught high school, he has been a college professor. He's an actor. Uh, he has been very involved in computer science and software, right? It's computer yes. software. Mm -hmm. uh, he is an author. He is a book publisher. And he is now a certified politician as of last year by joining the Nevada City City Council. So, Lou, yeah. welcome to the Sages Among Us. Thank you, Keith. It's very great, good to be here. Great to have you here. So this show is about your work and how you contribute to the community. But uh, I really want to start by learning more about you mm. and your background. So you grew up in Milwaukee. Yes. Uh, your mother was always interested in the arts, and hence your arts interest. Yeah. Your father was a World War II veteran who went on to become a lawyer, a state legislator in Wisconsin, and he served 10 years on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Yes. So what, in, in all of that, what was really memorable to you about your childhood? Well, I grew up in, in a part of Milwaukee, which I like to call rural Milwaukee, because it was on the far north end of the city. And when we moved into my grandparents' house in 1952, there were only two other houses within a mile of us, and one of them was an old farmhouse. So I grew up with fields and woods and all kinds of large open play spaces. And within the eight years that we lived there, that all got converted into suburbs. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> my, my earliest jungle gyms were the wood frames of the houses going up around us. I remember that sort of thing where, where I grew up in uh, the L.A. area in Whittier. And I remember one time I took a crayon and wrote on the stucco, stucco wall of a new house that was being built. And boy, did I get punished for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in, in my case, it was orange orchards uh, across the street, and then they became houses. And mm. I didn't like that very much either. Yeah, it's, uh, it's when, you're, when the landscape of your boyhood gets erased, it's kind of like there goes your boyhood, too. Yeah, well, you have to move on, I guess. Yep. But you had two older sisters. I'm wondering, were you mothered to death uh, by having uh, <laughs> two older sisters hovering over you? Quite the opposite, though. Uh, the only um, other man in the house was my grandfather, but he worked all day. So I had my mother, who also worked all day to support us, my grandmother, who did mother me, and my sisters, who were a constant annoyance. <laughs> <laughs> of course, they would say the opposite, that yeah. I was the constant annoyance. 
Well, so how would you categorize yourself? Were you the good child, uh, you know, studious, serious, that sort of thing, or the one that got into trouble down then? Well, I tried to be the good child, but yeah, I got into trouble. Um, my favorite occupation, I, I mentioned about roaming through the fields, was like going out and being gone all day. And I'd come back and my grandmother would be worried, where were you? And did you cross the, the busy highway? There was a big street there called Florist Avenue, and I wasn't supposed to go beyond. Right. But of course I did, because that's where the big fields were. <laughs> and past the florist was uh, a cattail swamp and a rubbish heap and a big old oil refinery. Oh, how fascinating. Fun to explore. Did, did, was it your, your rule you had to be home when the street lights came on? Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, childhood was a different thing then, wasn't it, for, oh, yeah. for I guys mean, our age? <laughs> I, was, uh, I went to first grade at Carleton High School, which I believe was a mile from our house, and my grandmother walked me there the first two days. And then I was on my own. Yep. So you had an interest in football as a young person. Tell us about your interest in football and how all that worked out. You earned a letter, right? Oh, yeah, I earned a letter, but the, the sideways way. So I wanted so much to be on the football team. Uh, and I played a lot of tag football uh, as a young boy in, in junior high. And I thought, oh, sure, I, I'm, I can run pretty fast, so I'll be pretty good at, as a receiver. Uh, and then... This is the boyhood thing. By then, we'd moved to the small town of Whitewater, Wisconsin, because my mother wanted to go back to college and finish her degree. Mm-hmm. And there were a couple of abandoned buildings in town, and one of them was an old grist mill. So me and my friend Greg went exploring through the grist mill, and I fell through the floor oh, boy. and scraped my shin all the way down to the bone. Oh, and tried to tough it out like nothing's happened. I'm fine. I'll be just. And I came home, and my sister Kristen said, "Why is one of your socks white and the other one red?" Mm. And that's when we discovered how bad the injury was, and it wouldn't heal. Uh, the skin would not close over the bone. So because of that, I couldn't play football because I couldn't take a shower. Wow. Uh, when, so I said, "Well, I, if I can't play, can I do something else?" And the coach said, "Yeah, we need a manager." So that year, I was manager for the freshman team, uh, assistant manager for the JV team, and water boy for the varsity <laughs> team. I went to every football game that year, and that's how I got my letter. I got a letter as a manager. Oh, cool. Well, so presumably your, he- your shin did heal up at some point. It, huh? it did, but I still have the scar. Really? Yeah. yeah well, childhood Half a century adventures. later. <laughs> So, but then there was basketball, right? Yes. Basketball was something I thought I would be good at because I had my growth spurt early and I was six foot tall in eighth grade. Oh, boy. I had aspirations. Every, Every coach who saw me had aspirations, too. The trouble is I was lousy. I was, I had, uh, my growth spurt happened so fast, I didn't know where my hands and feet were because they were further away than they used to be. (laughs) Yeah. And I played, um... Both seventh and eighth grade, and had a career total of four points. Yeah. Well, and you you were on de- you were a defensive player, right? <laughs> I was I was playing left bench. Uh, okay. Well, that's somewhat parallel to mine, but we don't we're not going to go into my f- basketball career tonight. I do want to say one thing. Yeah. Uh, two of those points were free throws, but one was a goal from the court, and the whole team stood up and cheered. <laughs> Lou scored. <laughs> Finally. So you ended up, what, what are you now? You're, you're six foot three? Six four? foot three and a bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
great. Well, you, your growth spurt served you well in the long run. Yep, it's still there. Any other significant experiences from high school years in that part of time of your life? Well, yeah, that was the first time I ever stepped on stage and and uh, performed before people. Now, in the sixth grade, because my mother was going to the college, um, the local theater uh, theater department was putting on Waiting for Godot, which is a really difficult show for kids. And there is a there is a kid in that show who uh. comes and tells. Vladimir and Estragon that Mr. Godot is not coming today, but he will come tomorrow. And I played that kid. And but th- this was an adult. I mean, it was produced for adults, right? It was not produced for It was an adult production. I yeah. can't imagine anybody producing Waiting for Godot for kids. No, it's not the sort of thing you see <laughs> even in a high school repertoire. Right. Um, but I loved the show because I thought it was so ironic. Yeah. And uh, the, t- the character playing the actor, I've forgotten his name now, playing Estragon, really did frighten me. So when I was supposed to act frightened, I wasn't acting. I was frightened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. yeah, that's, that's uh, method acting, I yeah. guess. Huh? <laughs> yeah, right. to, 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 to the hilt at the <laughs> very beginning. Uh, so uh, other memories about the drama and acting and so forth? Because that became quite a part of your life, right? Because of your mother's yeah. influence, I assume. Yes. Um, my sisters and I would put on little shows for uh, the parties that she would throw for the, well, she was in art and she was in English and and theater. So the, the graduate students and some of the uh, professors from those departments would come over to our house and have parties. And my sisters and I would put on little performances of Stan Freeberg presents the United <laughs> States of America. Oh, how cool. <laughs> that was fun. So um, you must have been pretty impressive on stage because you earned a theater scholarship to Southern Illinois University. Mm. So um, that, uh, you know, you, you must have made your mark. Uh, I made my mark in, a, in an interesting way. The first year that I was part of the, um, they had a summer theater camp. And that first year between my, um, let's see, that would have been between my sophomore and my junior year, the theater camp had started and I didn't sign up, but I was taking a class in advanced algebra in the same building. Ah. And that year they had 19 girls sign up and one guy, and they needed another guy to read guys' parts. So I volunteered, and I did well that year. That was the year I met the person who had become my future wife, Sarah mm-hmm. Parks. And uh, the following year, I did as well. And I, because of that, I think they gave me the scholarship. Oh, great. Yeah. So any other kind of memorable things about your college years? Oh, yeah, lots of them. Um, I remember being in a production of Under Milkwood, which was a beautiful, meant for radio, play um, by Dylan Thomas. Hmm. Uh, I was part of an original script about Anton Chekhov, and I just really enjoyed um, public performances of a kind that are known as reader's theater yes. these days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Great. Well, my name's Keith Porter. I'm the host this evening of The Sages Among Us, and my guest today is Lou Cece. Uh, that's the anglicized version. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's the Italian version really again? Well, my grandfather left Italy Luigi Ceci. 
Chechi. Yeah, and after 10 years in the Bronx, he was Louis Cici. <laughs> so that's how that <laughs> but I like Chechi. I think that's great. Anyway, Lou is a retired high school teacher, college professor, software engineer, novelist, and book publisher, lifelong actor, competitive swimmer. We haven't talked about that yet. And since last June, a city councilor for Nevada City. So mm-hmm. we're just getting acquainted here with Lou, and we're going to talk about his role in the community as well as we get on here. But uh, So you, you got your degree in theater mm-hmm. arts, and you taught English and, um, and speech and drama, I guess, yeah. at uh, mm-hmm. Benton, Illinois, in the high school. Yep. Um, what would you say about teaching in high school in terms of then versus now, with all the pressures on high school teachers, I guess all teachers, not just high school, but with the, quote, culture wars that we're seeing with so much pressure on education? There's always been pressure on teachers because basically we're parents in uh, absentia for eight hours of a day. Right. And in my case, because I ran the speech and theater department, which included plays, musicals, the debate team, and weekend speech contests, I had a lot of contact with those teenage kids. And for me, that was the delight of teaching, is to take kids who were um, talented and had a a, a range of expression and artistic and a depth of understanding of human emotions and literature and actually see them blossom, get to use that. Because the standard model in... Most high schools at that time was you were either a jock or, you know, someone who was popular in a social way or you were a nothing. Right. But theater gave them another way to be important and useful and have their fellow uh, classmates go, wow, this, this kid is really something. Yeah, the, the nerd concept hadn't really quite evolved, I guess, at that point. Uh, not, not yet. Uh, into acceptability, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you went on from there, uh, mm-hmm. got your Ph.D. in Northwestern, and you taught at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Yep. Uh, how was that transition from high school to uh, college teaching? Well, I always wanted to go in that direction. I was one of those people who said, I know where I'm going in life, and by gosh, I'm going to get there. Um, and I managed to get to Northwestern because I wanted to study oral interpretation, those, those things of public reading that I taught in high school and which I enjoyed as a member of the speech team when I was in high school. So I thought, where in the, where in the country do they teach that sort of thing? And Northwestern was one of the few places they do. Uh, and I wanted to do a PhD on uh, linguistic analysis of the poetry of W.B. Yeats. Oh. And to do that, I needed a, uh, a background in a certain kind of criticism that's called structural criticism, and that was a method of film criticism back then. It looks at the structures that are inherent in a given art form, in my case, poetry. In the case of most other people, uh, it was movies and films. And because of that, I took a course in radio, television, film production, and that really changed my life because that's how I ended up being chairman of the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Northern Colorado because I had a background in television production as well as a background in writing and speaking. Well, we're beginning to see a pattern emerge in your life because you got very established in something very specific, but then you did move on. After 12 Mm -hmm. years, Mm -hmm. you made a significant change in your life. You came to California, to Silicon Valley, and became a software engineer, working for startups. You said some of which you never never got up. They started, but they never (laughs) got up. That's true. But you also worked for big firms like Skype, developing an interface for blind folks. So tell us about that transition. Why why the transition? And uh, do you miss your time in the classroom when when that happened? Oh, I still dream about teaching, and they are good dreams. I really enjoyed teaching. I, I love seeing minds coming awake, grasping a concept and going, yes, this, I understand this now. Um, so that was still a great joy. In fact, 
I would say being a high school teacher was the most valuable thing I've done so far in my life. Really? Um, but I, the reason I went into computer science is because I said I wanted to do that structural analysis of grammar in WB Yeats. Well, it's a very tedious process, and I thought, well, a computer could do this. Ah. And I had a professor said, if you can, if you can write a computer that can understand human language, that's your PhD. Well, of course, now we do have computers that understand human language, right. but it's, you know... That are creating it. <laughs> yes, but, you know, it's half a century later. So, right. so but what initiated the transition uh, to, to California? What, what brought that about? Well, I, I had undergone a major transition in my life. My, uh, my wife of 12 years, Sarah Parks, a wonderful woman, and I split up because I came out as a gay man and I said, see. Okay. if I'm going to be a responsible person, I need to know how to handle this, these sets of emotions and these sets of interactions. So we split up. The Department of Journalism and Mass Communication was going through a major transition itself. Um, and after seven years of teaching at the University of Northern Colorado, I was making $24,000 a year. Ah, uh, yes. And I went, you know, mm. there's, there's more lucrative ways to spend my time. And I went back and got a master's degree in computer science and then moved out to California and joined the Silicon Valley Gold Rush. So before coming, though, you, got the, you went back to school, got the master's, yes. because, so you knew where you were going to go. You knew yes. how it was going to lead you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then your, your partner, uh, Don Flint, did you meet him in California? Or I, at, I did. I met him at a massage workshop in Berkeley called The Body Electric. Mm. And um, we hit it off right away. He was one of those people... It's, it's very rare quality in people. When you talk to them, you can see that they're listening. Mm -hmm. Often what you see is the eyes going, what am I going to say? What am I going to say next? And uh, with him, yeah. you had his full attention, and I really liked that. And you've also said that he was in, the person that influenced you to go into the book publishing business. Is that right? Yes, because he had been writing poetry for several years. Mm -hmm. And he taught me the, the most important lesson in writing is that rejection is part of it. Rejection is like walking down the street. You're going to get rejected many, many more times than you're ever going to get accepted. So you don't pay any attention to the rejections. You write, you submit, and occasionally you get published. Yeah. And that's a good day. All right. So um, you, uh, you, you came to California, mm -hmm. you, you met Don, you, mm -hmm. did, you started publishing material at mm -hmm. that point, but you actually then retired from the software business in 2015, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, eight, what, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and it, it, is that what brought you to Nevada City, and how did that all work out uh, in uh, your life? Well, um, I actually visited Nevada City for the first time in about 1995. And I had moved here from Colorado in 88. And um, let's just say the, the falls, the autumns in the Bay Area were disappointing. <laughs> things just kind of turned brown and fell off, but there wasn't a real change in seasons. Right. And my sister was living, my sister Ramey was living in Sacramento at the time. She said, go up to Nevada City. They have a beautiful fall up there. All right. And I came up. And she was right, and I fell in love with the town the very first day I was here. So did, was it an immediate decision, I'm going to live there someday? It was. I, took, I had a wonderful supper. I took a walk around town. I think I wandered down Alexander Street. I saw the stonework there. There was uh, grapes growing wild on a vine, and I said, someday I'm going to live here. And? And it only took me 20 years to get here. <laughs> so, so when did you actually then come to Nevada City? Uh, 2015. 20, well, okay, mm -hmm. at the time you retired. Yeah. All right. Um, do you miss the big city? 
I thought I would. And for the first year, I was going back to the Bay Area almost every month um, for things like concerts or the art museums or just social events. I had a book club there that I was a member of that I liked to participate in. But it that faded. And now a trip to um, the Bay Area is almost like uh, an, a trip to an exotic land. Really? Yeah. Exotic land with a lot of traffic. That's what I notice. Uh, I, oh, that's yeah. the, when we make that uh, sojourn, it's like, oh, my. Yeah. It's hard. It's wearing. Yeah. The first time I went there, hung around for a day, and then drove back, I said, I'm not doing that again. So I, I go to the Bay Area. I stay overnight with friends, and then I come back the next there you day. Go. Spread it out. Well, I'm Keith Porter. My guest today is Lou Cece. Uh Chechi. <laughs> <Chechi> Luigi. Lou's <laughs> a retired high school teacher, college professor, software engineer, novelist, book publisher, actor, competitive swimmer, and since last June, a member of the city council of Nevada City. So we're talking about civic engagement and uh, Lou's background, and now we're getting to the part about, hey, what's going on right here, right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you retired, uh, mm-hmm. and at that point, did you, you said you restarted Beautiful Dreamer Press, which is your book publishing business, right? right? Yeah. So that coincided with coming here to Nevada City as well? Yes. Okay. I first started Beautiful Dreamer Press to publish the poems of my partner, Don okay. Flint, who, di- who died of brain tumor in August 15th, 2020, uh-huh. uh, 2000 rather. 2000, okay. And um, that went well, but then I got really busy with my computer science job. And uh, once I stopped that and retired, I found there were more things that I wanted to do. In fact, once I retired, I was so busy, I wondered how I ever had time to work. Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I can commiserate with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there must be some parts of publishing that you enjoy and some parts that are kind of a grind that you do because it gets mm-hmm. you the enjoyment. What, what are the parts that aren't so much fun? The parts that aren't so much fun is trying desperately to get people's attention to read the book that you've published. I publish both other people's novels and my own. And, you know, there are about a thousand books published a week because it's easy now to uh, write a book and then find a publisher, an online publisher like Ingram. Yeah. Uh, and then, fine, you've got paperback books by the dozens, but who knows about it? How do you get them into bookstores? Marketing. Marketing. It's yeah. really hard. And it's a different skill from writing, quite a different skill. Quite a different skill, mm-hmm. yeah. So your publishing imprint is Le Croyon Press. <laughs> yes. So, and so tell us the backstory. Why that? Okay, so Beautiful Dreamer Press is the parent company, and that's the one where I publish other people's books. And that's the uh, publishing company that published my uh, dearly deceased partner Don's poems. But then I decided to publish my own novels, not waiting around for a publisher to pick it up. Just, you know, it's done. Let's get it out there and move on to the next one. Le Croyant is French for The Believers. Okay. And the four novels I wrote all take place in a fictional town called Croy, which means I believe, in Oklahoma, south-central Oklahoma. Really? Yeah. Now, you never lived in south-central Oklahoma, right? No. I lived in southern Illinois, which is similar in character, um, dialect, and... uh, like the fictional town that I built, the main uh, religions are Baptists and basketball. <laughs> and um, right. But I started writing about it before I had ever visited there. Um, but visiting there really helped ground the novels in the seasons, in the sights and smells, the wildflowers, and the weather. Oh, my God, the weather in Oklahoma is like unlike any I had ever seen anywhere before. 
Oklahoma. Oklahoma. <laughs> wind comes, yes, yeah. It doesn't just sweep across the plane. It kind of levels it. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you're, you're now cast in Guys and Dolls here, a production that's coming to Nevada City very soon. Yes, uh, uh, this, this uh, summer, uh, last three weekends of July and the first weekend of August. Can't wait to hear your beautiful voice in the, in the production. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, Lou, let me come back to a couple of personal questions for just a second. Uh, sure. Is there anything in your life that uh, you feel particularly proud of or you feel like it's an important achievement, accomplishment? At the very end of my high school teaching career, I was awarded a um, speech coach of the year for Southern Illinois mm-hmm. by Southern Illinois University. And I feel proud of that because it wasn't just an accomplishment of mine. My students, because they became, they came in that year, I think, the fifth best speech team in the state. And that includes all the Chicago suburbs, all the St. Louis suburbs, and all the big um, other uh, programs throughout the state. And we were just a tiny town of 10,000 people with a graduating class of 200. Really? But we were the fifth best speech team in the state. And... I really cherish that because it's, it recognizes me, but it really honors them. Yeah. Well, so the converse question, I suppose, is anything that you would do differently in life if you could do it all over again, anything that didn't work as well as you would, had hoped it might? Well, I had hoped I would be a scholar and a professor and, you know. Well, you were. Yeah, I was. And it didn't pay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've been a part of this community for a few years now, mm-hmm. um, channeling your father's genes, perhaps. Yes, indeed. You ran for, and you were elected to the Nevada City Council. And, uh, and he uh, said, the night I got elected, he said, I wish you could see me. There is the biggest smile on my face. So your dad's still there or still yeah, around? Yeah, he's and, 95 years old. All right. mm-hmm. So tell us about the experience as a counselor. Uh, any surprises, any regrets? No regrets. I mean, I'm glad I'm there. And I'm very happy to be working with this council and this city staff. We are actually getting things done. Um, a, the, the things that we have to do, the, the, taking care of the, the city's fire safety, taking care of the city's water supply, making sure that the Seven Hills District is as vibrant as the downtown area. All of those are wonderful goals. So I'm very happy to be working on that. The one regret is the pace. I would like it to go faster. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a reason why um, there have to be two, re- two readings before the public for any ordinance. And then there has to be a waiting period after the ordinance passes before it starts getting enforced. So it's, it comes with the territory. I suppose it maybe you, you could call it karma, but your life, you've gone through so many changes so, so rapidly, really, relative to most people. Mm-hmm. Now you have to slow down a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So um, how would you assess the state of our community uh, from your perspective? Are we doing the right things? Is there, are there other things we should be focusing on? We're doing the right things in many ways. We encourage the arts, performing arts, singing, uh, visual arts. Um, we're doing the right things uh, as far as commerce and encouraging business, we are not yet where we need to be in housing. Uh, Cashins Field really helped fill the gap for low and very low income housing, but we don't have enough moderate income housing um, by far. And that's a tough nut to crack. Well, Lou, we have just a couple of minutes left, and we haven't even mentioned competitive swimming. we got to talk about competitive swimming. Tell us about that. What do you do? <laughs> okay. So Don, my partner, uh, was a mountain biker. And after he passed away, I promised to do something about my weight and my health. And so I took up swimming. And 
I was terrible at it, which means it was really good exercise for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and then I had my first competitive swim in at the Sydney Gay Games in 2002. I completed the 200-meter freestyle without the use of medical assistance. <laughs> <A> major <laughs> and, accomplishment. And then, you know, I was off and running. And the nice thing about taking up a sport like swimming late in age is that you continuously improve. And as you improve, the number of competitors drops off. <laughs> so, so you become a champion a little, a little more easily. Although winning, winning know. by attrition. <laughs> I don't know. At my age, uh, yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, a genie in a bottle comes before you and offers you the wish. Oh what? What is your wish for the community? For yourself? Whatever. Oh, it would be it'd be a wish for the for the community. Yes, that we had a clear path forward for um, both fire safety and for increased housing. Those are difficult things to do. We're working on the fire safety. The housing, like I said, is a tough nut to crack. Yeah. It doesn't take just civic willingness to do it, but builders' willingness to do it, and a place to actually put it without destroying the character of the town. All right. Well, in our closing moments, uh, what would you like to say to our audience about uh, your experience here, about the community, um, any, anything else that uh, we didn't touch on? Well, I hate to boast, but I was right in 1995 when I said, I want to live here. They so came to the right place. I huh? came to the right place. I came not just to the right place, but the right neighborhood. I love it here. I love my neighbors. I love being able to do something for the city to continue it being vibrant and beautiful. What's your opinion about why this community attracts so many people like yourself uh, who could perhaps have a bigger influence somewhere else, make more money somewhere else, but are here because of the uniqueness and specialness this, of the The community? seeds were planted with people like Gary Snyder and Utah Phillips. I mean, they discovered this place, and then people like Osborne and Woods helped develop its uh, historic character. Those, the, those are the second wave of pioneers. Now we have to recognize the people who were here thousands of years before indeed, us and indeed. get them uh, justice. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. To the degree that we can do that in retrospect. Yes. Well, you have been listening to The Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Keith Porter. My guest has been Lou Cece, who is a newly elected city councilman and has all kinds of other things in his life. If you want to go back and review all of those, you can listen to the podcast that will be up this evening on kvmr.org. Uh, tune in next week for the next episode of The Sages Among Us where host Taylor Wolf will have an interesting guest. Uh, I'm, I'm, she's going to have to go far to find somebody more interesting than you, Lou. But anyway, <laughs> it's been great. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Keith. It's been great. <laughs>